Hello and welcome to the S Cafe House, the podcast brought to you by the Baroque Collective Solomon's Knot, where we explore behind the scenes or behind the arras, if you will, talking to interesting people and exploring the themes around our projects. If you enjoy the podcast, spread the word and head to our website at solomonsknot.co.uk where you can find all of our upcoming performances and sign up for our newsletter so you never miss a gig. I'm SK Artistic Director Jonathan Sells, and in this episode I'm chatting to academic Bettina Farvich, stage director John Labouchardier, and SK keyboard player Chad Kelly about J.S. Bach's St. Matthew Passion. What is it, and how will Solomon's not approach it? So welcome to our cafe house. I hope you've got your coffees ready. I know Bettina has already received her uh, S Cafe House uh, trademark coffee cup uh, for being such a long-standing contributor to this little coffee room. Today we are talking about Bach's St. Matthew Passion, which we are performing at Easter, three times around Easter in the Herderkirche in Weimar, in Snake Maltings out in Suffolk on Easter Sunday, controversial, and in Trinity College Chapel, uh, shortly thereafter in Cambridge, and then we're coming back to it three times in June in the Nikolaikirche in Leipzig, and in for Stauer Music and for the Wigmore Hall, although it's a little bit too big for the Wigmore Hall, so we are popping down the road to St. James's Spanish Place for our performance of it. And I want to say a very big welcome to our three guests today and introduce them for you. So, uh, S Cafe House Stammkundin Bettina Farvich is Professor in Music History at the University of Cambridge. Her research focuses on music and cultural history in the early modern period, in particular in the German-speaking lands, and she's interested in questions of musical meaning and expression, historical modes of listening, and music, music's place in the history of the body, the emotions, and the senses, which is all excellent uh, background for this particular discussion. And she's also worked on issues of reception and historiography, in particular the reception of J.S. Bach's music in the 20th and 21st centuries. She's written a book on the histories of Heinrich Schutz and has edited Rethinking Bach, published by Oxford University Press last year, which rethinks a number of fundamental narratives and assumptions around Bach and his music. Welcome, Bettina. Hi. Thank Welcome you. back, I should say. Uh, John, John Labouchardier is here. He is a stage director and he worked with us on the John Passion that we did at the Leipzig Bach Fest in 2019, a torrid day that none of us shall ever forget. <clears throat> uh, that whole performance is actually still uh, available to view online on the Bach at Home platform. Uh, he has a history of dramatizing non-dramatic material, including the full Monteverdi with E. Fagellini, which was a show which I first witnessed about 20 years ago and completely blew my mind. Uh, that's probably the, could be the subject of a whole other podcast episode, uh, what they did with that book of Monteverdi's madrigals, memorized and, and dispersed throughout the space. Also a fantastic DVD available to anyone who still owns a DVD player. Uh, he's also um, dramatized John Adams' El Nino and Joby Talbot's Path of Miracles for Spoleto Festival in America. Uh, once upon a time, he was a staff director at ENO, where he assisted Deborah Warner on the St. John Passion. And most importantly, in the context of this discussion, he's working with us 
to dramatize the Matthew Passion in our upcoming performances uh, and in those in those five churches and one console which I mentioned earlier and last but not least Chad Chad Kelly is a musical director, pianist, harpsichord, organist, arranger and composer and long-standing SK Continuo keyboard player. When he's not playing Continuo or as a soloist, he's working in the Opera House. Currently on the staff of Opera Australia, I was interested to, to learn. I knew that Chad was, had been living in Australia for a while, but now he's also working there, which is excellent news, and previously at the Bayerische Staatsoper and English National Opera. He also tells me he has yet to be wholly convinced, or at least blown away, by the St. Matthew Passion, so I hope he will add a healthy, critical voice to our discussion today. It's great to have all three of you here. So, Bettina, perhaps you could just kick us off. I mean, we have to assume for our listeners uh, some kind of working knowledge of the Matthew Passion for this, for this discussion, otherwise we would be here for a very long time explaining really what it's all about. But could you give us uh, an impression of what the Matthew Passion is? Well, what is the Matthew Passion? It is one of the most celebrated pieces in the canon of Western classical masterworks that um, wasn't conceived as that at all, right? So the way that most people tend to encounter it now is in going to a concert hall and hearing it as a piece of uh, great autonomous Western art. Um, the way it was conceived was, of course, for uh, liturgical service on Good Friday, um, telling the biblical narrative of um, Jesus's crucifixion in musicalized terms. So that's a tradition that started in the Lutheran Church uh, right from the word go of the Reformation, really. By the time we get to the 1720s, when Bach wrote the Matthew Passion, uh, this had grown into a kind of musical spectacle of quite um, inappropriate proportions, really, uh, in the sense that, you know, if you, if you uh, perform the piece uh, as part of the service, that service will last uh, easily over three hours, um, and the musical portion will take up uh, the, the majority of that. Uh, so it comes in two parts, um, uh, and a sermon would have been preached in the middle of it. And um, basically Bach draws out all the stops and goes to really stunning lengths to bring this story to life and use it as a kind of catalyst for spiritual, bodily, mental transformation um of his congregants i don't know is that a yeah <laughs> no that that that's a great start I, it's what it's what it's one of those classic works that we put on a pedestal isn't it it's so difficult not to introduce it as bach's monumental matthew passion uh i mean one undeniable thing about it is that it is long as you say uh that it's monumental in length, but we we it it sort of takes on its own religious significance almost in amongst concert goers uh, for various reasons. It's attained some kind of status. Chad, you want to say something? about Well, that? no, I was just wondering. Um, um, Bettina uh, mentioned that, of course, it was 
originally intended um, supposedly for Bucks congregants, but I don't know whether because um, of course there's so much time separating us and there's so much distance and so much abstract thought in between them. Was it in fact for Bach's congruence? Was it for Bach himself? Was it for Bach's uh, bosses? Uh, was it for future musicians uh, beyond Bach's time? You know, uh, as in, uh, I sort of, um, I just wonder whether Bach was writing for his audience, in other words, the congregants, or whether or who his audience was, whether it was the congregants mm. or whether it was mm. for himself or whether it was for this sort of relationship between him and God, you know, where he would he would write these sort of uh, dedicatory pieces, uh, you know, just that sort of thing. I just wonder whether it was actually for his congregants or, in fact, for his time or whether he was just doing it for himself. Mm. Mm. Well, I think if if you if you ask the great man, uh, I'm just going to step in those shoes and provide. I the do. Answer. I sp <laughs> I speak to him. I speak to him daily. I call him on Zoom well, usually when when everyone else is asleep in Europe. I call him, Bettina. I promise. Well, you ask him then. Well, um, I have, but I'm now asking you. <laughs> now, I think I think what Bach would say is that that he writes his music for the praise of God, right? Um, fundamentally, the function of music in the service, but also in the world in general, was to um, honor and and enhance the glory of God in His creation, right? Mm. Um, and then that's what he says. Sorry, right. No, no, I, I, I think. I mean, from all the evidence we have, I think we need to go with that. But what, what I don't think that means is that um, what Bach's interested in is that sort of image of him as. Uh, preaching a sermon in music, right? So this idea that somehow what this music is doing is it's uh, representing in tones the kind of theological messages that the accompanying sermon would have tried to get across, right? So this idea of Bach as the fifth evangelist, this idea that really what we should be listening for is what does it all mean? What's the what's the theological message? What's the deep? What? How do we need to decode this? Right. I I don't think Bach was primarily a theologian. I you know he was, he was a musician who was interested in squeezing everything he could out of his materials, um, and he was interested in music as as music and the possibilities inherent in in what you could do with music, both as a as a sort of uh, intricate structural thing because he's obviously obsessed with just how can these notes fit together in a hundred million more ways um, but also I think in terms of music as this kind of as I said this kind of catalyst for something cathartic for something transformative so using music as a way to really immerse people in a feeling of horror at their own sinfulness and instilling a kind of deep sense of remorse and penitence within their own bodies and souls and skin and bones and then allowing music to act as a kind of release valve as a as a way of then um, getting the tears flowing and opening the heart and softening the heart and driving out the the, the sinful matter and then you're ready to receive grace and and be saved. So that, op that opening call uh, 
in the in the first chorus helft mir klagen you're saying that's what the matthew passion is effectively doing that's its role it's it's helping all of these people to grieve not only for the the death of christ most obviously but in a way also for their own sin for what for their own part and to to it's a counseling or a yeah some kind of therapy as grieving is of course for dealing with all of these uh negative negative feelings horrible emotions and and guilt and all the rest of it that is that is brought up by this and, and story are you, are you saying that the congregants hearing it for the first time the very first time it's ever performed would have recognized that immediately hearing the beginning of a chorale melody you know as in i find it as Bach clearly was writing these sort of musical codes of which there are clearly many you know these references to this and to that um they clearly weren't going to be most of them weren't going to be recognizable to the, the congregation or to many generations potentially after him it was only since you know the past 250 years of going through it and with a fine tooth comb that we find new and new things potentially we find things that shouldn't have been found you know i don't know chad i i just uh i think it's there's quite a lot of it which is not really that coded so much of it is so direct uh what you're saying bettina about him not being not taking a theological angle on the whole thing it's not cerebral or, or preachy a lot of it is really just plugging it straight into the listener. I think there's so much in the piece. Of course, the the text the text is almost a larger part of it than than the music. The, the chorale themes is one thing because they trigger an, an emotional response, and I'd love to get more deeply into all of these layers. But it seems that the the text and the way that the music uh, takes the text on as a, a vehicle plugs these emotions that are brought up and the, and the guilt and the sin and all the rest of it plugs that so deeply into the listener's heart and mind it does really almost physicalize it as you say Martina. I, I don't think i don't think there's that much decoding to be done to be honest well no, no so hearts and minds yes of us today and in, in fact this is what's very important for say john to, to add an extra layer potentially and for solomon's not to add an extra layer of in fact but um I, I i find it very hard to fathom yes of course the the illusions that yes of course people have recognized text and they have recognized specific um chorale melodies and they will have recognized the the regular pageantry of the good friday service and the the passion hearing they will have recognized that but nonetheless the very intricate details which we now pour over uh and we now celebrate and we rightly um recognize uh they would not have been um recognized at the time and it's only since having poured over it so much and so much and I'm just wondering whether those those tiny details, which we all love, which we all think are so wonderful, and such genius, whether actually they're... What kind of tiny details are you specifically talking about? I mean, it what could... What kind of thing do you mean? Okay, so could it be uh, uh, the filigree flute lines above all the chorus 
the tuba chorus lines, where, of course, the flutes would never have been heard. And what role are these flutes playing when they're playing a completely different role melodically to everything else that the entire full orchestra and choruses are playing? What sort of, are they those, you know, what is that? That's for no one else other than for Bach maybe his flute players, maybe the people stood next to the flute players. Etliche aber schlugen ihn ins Angesicht und sprachen Details like that, I think you probably could say what may not have been picked up on interpretative level. No, but they're the sorts of things that we rightly now think, oh my good word, this is the most incredible thing, but how amazing that this is, this, this missing detail, but of course, you know, and maybe that's to miss the, the bigger picture, uh, and, and that's what I'm missing myself, and what I'm looking forward to uh, hopefully <laughs> enjoying when we We'll put the flutes next to you then. That'll be fine. Please. <clears throat> on the stage. On the stage. Please, yeah. What 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 I think I think it's worth breaking down the way that these uh different layers, different voices within the passion structure are put together. Uh because this for me this is one of the most fascinating things about this type of passion specific type of passion which Bach works with most famously in the John and, and the Matthew Passions where unlike the Passion Oratorio, the whole Bible text has not been transformed into a new play, as it were. This isn't all new poetry, uh, as you get in the in the Brockus Passion of, of Handel, for example. Um, and it's it incorporates the word-for-word, word, or very, very almost word-for-word word biblical story, Matthew's Gospel, two chapters, and surrounds that with certain kinds of framing devices. So Pizanda, Bach's librettist, uh, presumably worked with him to put this whole text together. Uh, I think the opinion is that Bach probably selected the chorale verses. Pizanda wrote this new, these new poetic texts to respond <clears throat> immediately to what's happening in the, in the Bible story. Uh, and then you have these other these these daughter of Zion movements, which recur, <clears throat> excuse me, which recur throughout the piece, which stand at a, a different kind of distance from what's going on. But as a as a listener, let's say let's take the case of the contemporary 
listening in, in Bach's congregation, you have all sorts of different historical distance going, of course, all the way back to the original events and then the retelling of those events by Matthew later and zooming up all the way to the present day, brand new poetry, brand new words which have never been heard before, which have been written specifically for this world premiere, written very much in the in the modern aesthetic of the day, designed to reach out and grab that listener <coughs> and cut through all of that historical distance and make people realise this isn't about something that happened 1700 years ago and is very dusty and old. This is something which you are implicated in, which you are watching now. We're trying to, uh, we are reliving, we're retelling this story because it's extremely relevant to whether or not you will, your soul will go to heaven or to hell. So a, a, a pressing and extremely important matter for all those people and this the the interesting thing that i also want to focus on today is because that piece was so specifically aimed at those people then and was designed to be most relevant to them oh yeah we, we can argue about that time. how you know how does the distance between that time and now change how we how we listen to it one little thing I see Chad shaking his head. I I agree on some level, Chad, when uh, about you know who was he who was Bach writing this for. One thing perhaps we can talk about later is also this this autograph score which he took incredible care over, and got his red he even got his red pen out for it, and he was obviously there creating some kind of object for posterity. There was an obviously an element of that in the way that he preserved the materials of the physical materials of this piece, but. But for me, it feels it was obviously conceived as a as something to be as relevant as possible and immediate as possible for those people who are listening to it for the first time. John, well, I I uh, I kind of agree with Chad in a way. I didn't think I would on the, on this particular point, but I I do think that it, it to some extent I'm not sure it matters. Bach was writing for for his own time, and maybe it was for himself or for his own audience, uh, his congregation. Um, but within the framework of contemporary life in Leipzig then, and that was his understanding of the world, and that was their understanding of the world. So it, it maybe it doesn't matter too much whether it was for him or for them. Um, I obviously, if there are details that we don't hear. Um, then, and the things we see that are in the school that we don't actually know about experiencing it, and that's kind of fascinating in its own way. In terms of the layers, um, I, I, I do think it's perhaps the most fascinating thing about the piece dramaturgically is that you step in and out of, of something, uh, you step in and out of the drama, um, and that Bach presents the gospel in very modest terms. Um, it's, very, it's almost like it is text, as if it's fact. Um, and if he, although, um, of course, the the continue and the way the evangelist and 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 Jesus in particular express those words is moving and touching in a um, and expressive that that he uses very very modest forces compared to everything he dedicates to 
the, what, we are, what we're meant to think and feel around that story. So the, sto- the subject, it seems to me, is not really Jesus' suffering whatsoever. It's about our relationship with that suffering, and that's where he throws all his um, weapons. Um, how we feel about it today, I think, is... I mean, it's almost not my, not my place to say, really. Um, my own faith is pretty wobbly. Um, I believe in God more when I listen to Bird and Bach, and if I don't listen to Bird and Bach, I don't believe in it very much. Um, certainly isn't very much part of my daily life. And yet, you know, we're working on a project like this. I have to commit to the piece. I commit to the to the text and what I think Bach was getting at and what the, the what... I think the gospel is meant to mean. I mean, it's it's a it's a a slightly educated guess, and then we commit to to expressing that as best we can in our own terms, and whatever it means to us will be meaningful in some way. And whether uh, whether we um, whether we're trying to com- convert people to Christianity I, I, I is not necessarily the point. Um, by engaging with the piece ourselves in a very authentic manner. Um, is inherently meaningful, and that must communicate on some level. I'd like to ask Bettina, if this piece was so specifically aimed with such a strong message at those original listeners, and Bach's music, as you said, aimed to grab them by the heart or whatever it was, how does that change for us now? Assuming we're not Lutherans, assuming we're not fearing for our mortal souls as a result of our implicated guilt in the death of Christ. Why do people still flock to hear the Matthew Passion? Well, I think there's, there's different answers you could give that. I mean, I, I'm, 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 a, I'm a non-believer. Um, I, I, haven't, I haven't found, found God through Bach. Um, I don't think... It has to be that if we're if we're looking at this music as a way to allow us to live through and immerse ourselves and feel things that um, define the boundaries of what it means to be human, let's say the 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 very very lows and the very very highs, then that is not something that's necessarily tied to um, a particular faith or any faith at all, um, and so. Something like that opening chorus you you mentioned, Johnny. Uh, I don't think that we necessarily need to hear it or use it as a way to internalize the particular Christian uh, relationship with this particular story of Jesus and so on. We also, I don't think, uh, I don't know, Chad, I, I, I get a real sort of sense of suspicion of the musicological, you know, g- g- grip on Bach, and and that's I'm I'm very I'm very much in tune with that because I want to talk about this music differently. I want to talk about it not in terms of oh, if we count these numbers of notes, then you know that's amazing, and it, it you know, um, but I think if we if we talk about it as something that um, is put together in a way that necessarily overwhelms our cognitive faculties in terms of trying to keep track of all the stuff that's going on. You know, he builds up these layers of you've got that throbbing pedal bass that hits you right in the 
in the stomach and, and, and vibrates there and sits there, right? And then he builds up the, the, the contrapuntal layers. Um, and you can't, you, can't, you can't actually work out what's going on. It's, it's, not a, it's not an exercise in trying to understand how amazing his, his contrapuntal abilities were or anything. But it's, it, it's, uh, of, course, of course, his congregations would have heard that every single week, day in, day out, when he was improvising, and he would have begun with a big pedal bass, and he would have done, uh, he would have, uh, it's, it's just like the opening of the John Passion, it's just the opening of Matthew Passion. I'd say, I'm willing to say, 60% of Bach's works begin with a pedal bass with a particular harmonic progression over the top before. You know, you know it's, I, I wouldn't say that that's, anything necessarily new it's no it's... no i'm not saying it's new at all yeah yeah no you're right it's it's one of it's one of the ways in which bach draws you into a musical universe that affects you emotionally in ways that you might not even be able to put words to and and it's it's that thing that music can do that i think we still find powerful today so it it gives you you know t i don't know um abamadish yeah that that amazing aria um, of the recognition of oh my god I've really screwed up yeah um, you 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 can't actually put a, a label to what this aria actually expresses you know is it is it um, there, there's there's remorse there's there's a there's a kind of a, a pleading there's a there's a sense of loss and despair and there's also some kind of hopefulness for some kind of something out there that might actually redeem us and so on and so on but it doesn't really matter if you can't put the any exact words to it it's the fact that this music allows you to enter into a particular kind of um affective state that you wouldn't necessarily otherwise find yourself in and so it it makes it it allows you to live through the kinds of things that might the, the, the kinds of things that, that are meaningful and make us human beyond the, the particular narrative that's going on. I think that's really fascinating, particularly from a performer's point of view, because an audience member is going to get what they get and understand what they understand and reference it within their own understanding. But um, but a singer, other musicians too, but I, but I think sing, singers in particular in Solomon's Not's case, because 
songs are not perform singers work without scores and it's very if you've got a score in your hand you can sing the notes and the words in a generically meaningful way maybe in a very specifically meaningful way but the moment you take the score away it's very hard not to commit to something more specific than than what you're talking about you have to commit to something in the same way as you were playing scarpia or or uh, semele you, you have to commit to something on stage as a character and with even though someone was not is on a concert platform without their scores they cannot hide and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to I was interested to work with Thon was not was to see what we do with this gap this this um empty space which is a, a which is left by the lack of a score and I think it's fascinating that what what you're saying because you I completely agree that an, an audience will have this layered of um sense of meaning and beauty um out of what Bach has constructed but as a performer you kind of need well as a singer you need to commit to something more specific than that and in a, in terms of what we need to do I thought I think that's very interesting because it is it's a it's quite a challenge because each of us will have to each of the singers will have to pin down something in order to commit to that it doesn't have to be what you or I think it is about or what we think Matthew actually meant or Bach meant but it has to be something specific and it 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 it, it cannot be generic generic in the same way as we think the difference between like a you know a leader singer in a recital is operating in this world where the poetry is kind of his or hers um and no longer belongs to the poet because he's not reading a score anymore so what are you going to do i'm i'm really i'm really excited to hear what you're actually going to do because i you know I, i i love your work john that i've seen um i i've really enjoyed um i don't know that 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 Jankan thing was was brilliant uh, you know i, I <laughs> um so it yeah might not, what, it what? might not be like that it might not be like that ah, <laughs> i think it's worth yeah. well one, one thing that's <laughs> worth saying is that we well we we're trying to blur a lot of boundaries or break a lot of boundaries or try to subvert the concert uh, format and subtle ways and sometimes less subtle ways uh, one thing we are doing in this context where possible is to uh, chad will be playing a monumental organ prelude uh, before we start with a pedal with a lot of pedals uh, and yes it does in fact start with a you, pedal with the same harmonic progression in a controversial mm. transposition
but uh, <laughs> and we'll and we'll finish after the piece as we did with the John Passion with uh, the uh, Jakob Gallus motet, which followed uh, every Passion performance in Leipzig. So we are alluding to a liturgical frame, let's say, and we also often in our performance we want to make it seem that the performance almost arises out of the situation naturally or as if the performance almost erupts out of the audience so where possible where we're not up on a very high stage and very much separated from the audience we try to uh, sometimes you know dress similarly similarly to to them or come out of the audience before we start so that where the performance begins and ends is unclear and it's not clap 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 turn the lights down this is a concert so yeah that that boundary is is blurred in a way and then we have this frame which also perhaps tells you you're not you're not quite in a concert or is this a yeah it's a sort of semi-ritualized experience and then as john said we we don't have scores and a lot of the instrumentalists on this occasion will also be that the instrumental soloists will also be uh without the music so they'll be freer to move around um and i'm very interested to hear what john thinks about this but for me when we're also all standing in front of the orchestra it becomes much more of a conversation uh, perhaps rather one-sided conversation, but we are standing directly in front of all these listening people who feel that they have nowhere to hide, really, because we are because we're not hiding behind our scores. Uh, they really feel that they are being addressed directly and, and drawn into that conversation. And I think, in a way, you know, you don't need you don't need trapeze artists and you don't need to be naked to you know, for, for that to be a very intense experience in and of itself. And for me, it's about tweaking that to make it, to making it as strong as possible and challenging ourselves as performers to be as brave as possible, um, to accept this nakedness, which we've chosen and to, to just look people in the eye, really metaphorically and, and literally. Yeah, I, I think uh, that's, that's, that's what Solomon's not does. And I think my my job in this is not to we're not trying to stage um, Matthew Passion. Um, we're not going to use trapeze artists, <laughs> but or, or indeed I'm not really interested in anybody walking. You know, we're not going to block it and decide well you go over there for that bit and you do that. But for that, I don't think um, I have no intention of <clears throat> of giving visual expression to the piece. Um, I think particularly with something as complicated, complicated and layered as as John pa- as Matthew Passion, um, it, it's in, it's there's a lot of work to do to understand how to think it, um, and uh, the singers are in a sense naked, and and they need to think their way from one thing to the next in order to provide a, their own dramaturgical path. From the from the beginning to the end, and it needs to make sense on some layer, some level for them. Um, and I think my job is really just to facilitate that. Um, we're not taking the next step and then saying what you do with that and, and and stage it, 
but but all of the background work and the thinking that needs to go behind a performance will still still be there as if we were staging it, I think. And so we're not going to end up with a version of um, La Chasse with people sitting with them. With playstations um, uh, or any, I don't think any any anything that feels staged. Um, I think it would just uh, allow um, Bath's work to emerge more intimately um, because everybody engaged uh, on stage and hopefully people off stage or um, in the audience will be more connected with the material than they would have been if we were sitting with schools. Yeah, and we've discussed. John, about leaving the imaginative space as open as possible as well. I think if you if you stage something, obviously in a, in a, a theatre most specifically with props and costumes and so on, you're taking so many specific decisions. You're nailing a lot of things down, and that does push people in the direction, I suppose, of following your thought and following your idea, but also into a quite soon into a question of do I like this or not. <laughs> You know, do I do I get this production? Do I appreciate that interpretative idea, or is it, or do I not agree with it? Uh, and for me, it's much more interesting just to try to deliver what we have to deliver as directly as possible, and the rest of the imaginative space is left open inside the mind of the listener. And I, I I really like that because that yeah that's one of the things that that has obviously been been leveled against you know past staging of the piece, in 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 so many ways this this question of oh what does this what does this do to the work right and and how does it violate the the sort of the the sacred integrity and autonomy of of this of this work but um, well it becomes reduct reductive ultimately if you put too many boundaries on what the piece can mean then. It can't mean other things, and that, um, and a piece like Matthew Passion is is inevitably reduced by saying that it's only about this group of people, and and in the way we watch an opera, expecting us somehow to empathise with those people and not with ourselves, uh, and and Bach's pieces. I think I, I read in your in your um, in article um, that in a sense the piece is is putting us in it as well. That we, it's an opera. If it's an opera in any sense, it's an opera about about the people watching the piece. It's a bit about about us and our contemporary society. Um, and so, if you make it only about another group of people, then it is it's harder for us to to engage with it. And you know, it's one thing doing that with a with a um, with material that's hard for us to access. You know, there are pieces that audiences find difficult to get get um, to get there their head around um, and although Matthew Passion is incredibly complicated and hard to comprehend it's extremely accessible in terms of emotional engagement so you don't need to, to say to force it into something that makes sense so that people can, uh, can understand it it doesn't need that it, it's incredibly expressive and you know as you said it punches you in the stomach so I don't think the piece demands that sort of treatment no, and then I, I, yeah, this idea of of breaking down those boundaries is so important because, uh, yeah, the way in which it is presented on on the concert hall stage is such a weird choreography in itself that w- has become so naturalized that we assume that this is just you know it, there's there's no suddenly there's it's it's unmediated right we just get the work as it is but but actually 
it, it's such a weird ritual, right? And it, it does it does create all these boundaries around how you're meant to behave, how you're meant to um, engage with with the piece, and it puts the audience in a particular place, right? And and that's and and the answer obviously is not to go back to saying oh, but so we must perform it how it was in the liturgy and so on, because that that doesn't create the kind of meaningfulness for for an audience today. But but somehow allowing that kind of um, so not historical authenticity, but a kind of personal authenticity of that expressive intensity uh, that that then can do that job of actually drawing people in 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 the way that in some form the piece is designed to do. I, I have always been fascinated since I think I was about six um, with the possibility that every audience member has of actually breaking the rules and walking on stage. I've, I've always been every time I sit in the auditorium, I just think, but I could. And although I don't really want the audience to do it, I really want them to feel like they could and, and that, that, that there's nothing actually stopping them from doing so and that the barrier between us is so fluid. It, I remember the first time I went to the Globe and, and I just, it was transformative because I didn't have that those barriers. They were just there and there was no frame. There was nothing to say we're here or there. And... I'm not knocking those other forms of performance at all. You know, they're, they're valid and wonderful in in, in the right situation. Um, but the the fluidity, I, I think, is is incredibly important in any performance situation. And and I think um, I'm going to refer to your um, uh, some comments about um, the John Passion now. I think um, because I know that the the Lamb was very controversial. Um, this is in Deborah Waters. Matthew, before. wasn't it? Yeah, no, the, the, the John Passion at, at ENO, um, Deborah wanted to bring a, a live sh- lamb on stage, and um, and the critics did not like it. Um, Dead lamb, surely would be. No, it was alive. It was it was it was still ready for. It was a lamb for the slaughter, um, and uh, and Mad, Mad Pat, Mark Padmore brought it on, and and um, occasionally it bleated, not always. Um, it always peed. Um, which is probably more of a problem for people on stage. Um, uh, but it, it, the audience did not know what to do. Um, and, and, uh, and I found it extremely powerful. The, the chorus actually very interesting, found it overwhelming, not because it was funny, but just the li- the liveness was just too much for them. And they, for many, many rehearsals, they just broke down and couldn't really sing. Um, and I think that it, it shook us from our, the comfort of our seats in the Colosseum uh, in the same way that um, that asking the audience, giving them the option to sing the chorales, historically incorrect as that might have been, left, left us in this fluid situation where we didn't know what to do. And yes, it was alienating and Brechtian on, on some level, um, but rather that than just sit there and just soak um, because then we we were participating on some oh, level. Oh, completely. No, I completely agree, and I think it's I think it was incredibly brave and brilliant in in lots of ways. And yeah, just to so I had the complete opposite experience as a I, I think it was five, maybe. And I went I went to my first classical concert with my parents, and it was a little church in in the mountains in Austria, and it was this pianist playing Schubert, and so it was tiny, and there were there were chairs sort of right around where the where the piano was set up, and we had got like the front row seats right behind the pianist. And so there was five years old and the pianist walks on stage, um, sits down to, pl- to, to play. Before he starts, he turned around, looked at me, looked me in the eye and said, not a peep. Wow. And so that was, that was my 
I don't know. And then it's taken me a long, long, long time to understand that actually it's okay to be at a concert with your body and with your presence and with, you know, be engaged and be there. And it, okay it really, I think, what's that? It's okay to peep, it's but okay not to, to pee. pee. <laughs> if you're if you're a lamb, you can do both. Um, as a as a person, I think it was it really it it set it it created a, a, a sort of framework for me for what a classical concert was. That that took me a long long time to 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 sort of you know yeah. sh- shake myself free from. So that's a barrier. Yeah, that's a, that's Furious. a big barrier. <laughs> Although bold, I think bold front front row seats with your five year olds a bold move. That's my but, parents, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, just, to, just to say that the, the article to which John is referring is uh, Bettina's article, Beware the Lamb Staging Bach's Passions in uh, 20th Century Music, 2014, in case anyone wants to look that up. Um, I, one of the things that I think is so uh, in, or interesting or at least completely different for us performing this piece now compared to the situation we've been talking about when it was a world premiere is that it's it's become a completely different thing you know this this whole idea of the canon and it's one of those most pedestalized works people come knowing this piece backwards people come having heard this piece hundreds of times and of course we come to it as performers having having an even more intimate relationship with it most of us and doesn't that turn it into something completely different it's sort of it's the repetition of a ritual i'm sure there are many many people who want to hear the matthew passion every year on good friday they want to go as people do also with messiah um it's part of their annual ritual whether they're religious or not i mean my my, uh, father did that for a long time and he has a i think fairly ambiguous relationship with with religion and so you know that culturally that changes the position of the police of the piece entirely uh it used to be the case that people would listen to the piece in a language that they understood uh and but a lot of the time i mean outside of german speaking countries of course a lot of the time that isn't even necessary anymore um and although we may well be pretty familiar with the text and, and what it means a lot of the time we're we're happy to just sit and listen to the sounds of it and the approximate idea of what's going on but then you know that makes it even further away from these graphic images and graphic words which are uh, which Pitanda wrote to really uh, you know push our face into the mud of this of that terrible story so I'm interested, Bettina, in your in your thoughts of uh, well, I'm, what I what I think we want to try and do in in being as direct as possible with it is to try and cut through some of that, to try and cut through some of that holy cloud, um, and and bring bring the story back, um, make it as hard as hard hitting as it was intended to be. Yeah, I think I think defamiliarization is a is a is a really useful approach to take to something as as canonical and as familiar as as the Matthew Passion where you're right um, a, a lot of people I think will have a their own particular relationship to the piece probably a favorite recording and 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 so on and so on and then it um, 
I think I think opening up different different uh, ways of experiencing it, um, unexpected ways, um, ways that pull you in completely different directions than you, than you thought you would, rather than um, sort of creating that sense of of complete comfort and you know familiarity where you then sit through it yet again and you've done it and that that has its own i mean i you know i i i would grant people that <laughs> that that pleasure as well uh but but i think that there is that that the way in which it can be shocking or 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 or, or grab you sort of you, you get sucked in at the beginning and then you get splattered at the end and you are completely transformed um that it would be nice not to not to lose that. I'm curious, Chad, what your experiences have been because you you say, you know you said this has yet to spit you out at the end and 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 feel that you've had a, a transformative experience. Have you have you been involved in the piece a lot as a performer or a listener? What's your encounter been? I've done a fair bit as a performer and a, slightly less as a listener. Um, I would just jump in straight away and say that one of the things I'm most excited about over the, over the coming months is seeing how Solomon's not uh, with John's help uh, realizes this piece, and I'm I'm pinning all my hopes on that no as a pressure. way of um, sort of well no so uh, so I must start and say that as a I feel closest to Bach um, as a keyboardist. And I think lots of keyboardists feel like that way. Um, Which is one of the most abstract, or let's say purely musical experiences of Bach. However weird, however weird and, and, and yet, on the other hand, the Matthew Passion is heralded as his, one of his most human, one of his most personal works, which we can most... And weirdly, I feel... I don't really feel that. Whereas I feel more... Personally moved, I feel closer to Bach. I also feel more uh, instinctive feelings within myself. Playing something as, in inverted commas, abstract as a keyboard partita than I do from his supposedly most... And this is... I must also preface this by saying that I am um, a man of the theatre. I work in opera all the time. And, of course, I'd say that Matthew Passion is one of his most operatic uh, in terms of structure uh, and ambition and storytelling and narrative uh, that Bach um, endeavoured to achieve. Um, But in that sense, on paper, I should love this piece, but just something doesn't quite click for well, it. Well, you've got your work cut out for uh, yourself. With me. <laughs> Make, making it click. No, I do. And this is, this is, this is why I am desperate. And the cantatas, many of, many, not all of the cantatas, many of the cantatas hit me, take me on board, transport me. Is it, is it the, is it the length of it? Because, I mean, the Matthew Passion in a way is like lots and lots of cantatas put together. And obviously there's a, there's a good, there's a sort of symmetrical superstructure. But as I think some people just find the Matthew Passion too much to swallow. The John um, is much more compact. It's, it's more you, fast moving. Do you want me to be brutal? Do you want me to be brutal? I want you, to, you be want to be brutal. Come on, this is the okay. space, the safe I, space. Bacholics Anonymous. <laughs> Not so anonymous. <laughs> I, I dislike the text. I dislike the setting of the text in terms of the way it's set for the evangelist. Uh, I think the core, uh, 
the relationship between evangelist and chorus, the crowd, whoever they are, uh, I dislike that, and I don't like the way that that's paced or structured. I, I don't like a lot of the voice leading in the chorales. I also don't like the uh, as in I could I could go as in yeah. I said dislike. Dislike is a strong word. It's not dislike. It's uh, you're not totally convinced. As in, objectively, it's incredible. Objectively, it's perfect. But it's just. I just what do I, is he trying too hard? Do you think he's trying too hard? Perhaps. Perhaps I wonder whether he had just done the John Passion and he'd revised the John Passion a few times and maybe maybe a few of the um, maybe a few of his bosses in the church who had maybe asked him to tweak some of the liturgical aspects of the John Passion, which which may have been the reasons why he did that. Maybe that's why he endeavoured to set up this, whether he saw this as maybe a magnum opus, uh, some sort of way in that. I mean, the John Passion in the way that say the early Weimar cantatas literally get me in straight away i am hooked i am on the journey and i am ready and i'm just wondering what well i just wonder whether the matthew passion because it's all so introverted just we just, just want to think about it so much i just wonder whether that just really fits with the 21st century. I, I don't know maybe i'm speaking very i don't know that's I just, just something about what bettina said about him pulling out all the stops that that makes it too much. You know, all those da capo areas, especially towards the end of the piece, you just sometimes, I know people said to me, ah, you get that da capo and you just think, oh, really? I love a da capo. (laughs) Oh, I love a da capo. And it's also the director's sort of, uh, rarely, no, 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 the opposite. No, the opposite. You mean a stage director or a musical director? Oh no, both, both. Both. I would, I love a dacapo. It's like, it's, I love a dacapo. thing in music struck well before there is something undeniably uh, challenging about the layers i mean chad is not someone i would ever think would be challenged by something with layers because of what he does but um but as an emotional experience you do have to kind of let it wash i think um and that if you my own relationship with matthew is matthew passion is actually not that that profound in that I, I didn't sing it as a kid and I didn't have any performance relationship with it whatsoever. I've been to some performances of it in my life and listened to an enormous number of recordings, but I don't have any real kind of engaged um, 
I've never got my hands dirty with it before. Um, and although that's what we have to do now, my own sense of the pieces has been was you know, the John Passion is something I knew from childhood and 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 later, and it does hit that way. Whereas I feel like Matthew Passion is like this. Can and you explain those hand gestures to the listener? Yes, of course. Sorry, that's not very helpful on a podcast, <laughs> is it? So, um, to John Passion, this is acting for radio. Yeah. Um, um, to John Passion is direct. Inevitable. It, 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 Inevitable. it comes straight Inevitable. between the eyes, actually. It really just, there's no avoiding it. Um, whereas the Matthew Passion is like a wall coming at, at me, I, I find. And... Um, and yes, it is overwhelming, and maybe it, it, it's so overwhelming that you can't pay it, can't actually take it in. Um, and that is our our job is to make it possible to 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 take in. Um, I I was just going back on something you were saying, Johnny, about um, about trying to do it for a modern for a modern audience. One of the things I find really unusual about what we're going to do is that we're opening. Our premiere will be in Weimar, in front of the Kranach altarpiece. So we will have behind us literally one of the worst upstaging events of musical performance ever, where <clears throat> an iconic representation of Jesus is suffering, complete with a sort of demonstration of the cleansing power of his blood <clears throat> in one performance, and then the next performance in Alderborough with a brick wall. And how we span that, I think, is really interesting. I don't know the answer. I'm not going to pretend that I am, you know, um, a magical. And without without an organ, without a big organ in in Snake Malting, so without True. Chad's huge prelude. Oh well, well, it doesn't matter. Well, what, the audience in Weimar and the audience in Snape are very different people, very different beasts. Mm. But should but should our message change? Should it adapt, or should it? Or should it be? You know, I think it will or... change by the nature of the setting. I don't. I, ultimately, I, we don't have time to rehearse it, so it's going to have to be the same. Um, um, <laughs> but what we mean will be different because the setting changes what it comes across as. So it, it's simply not going to be the same without that altarpiece behind us and without the the, the same acoustic and sense of of history being in Weimar or in Leipzig um, months later. It won't and be a very same. different, a very different audience. I mean, we have a, incredibly, and a as you German say, the German audience, the German audience that probably knows the text backwards. Do you imagine any first-time listeners in the audiences, either at Snape or Weimar? Always. Do you hope? I think one or has you to hope? hope. Do you hope? Do you hope? One yeah. Well, this hope. is what I was thinking. As well, I was thinking, Chad, while you were speaking, it's it's a it's the the best gift or the biggest. Uh, food almost for us as performance is, is knowing that there's someone there either on stage or in the audience who is yet to be converted not saying that we should thinking I'm trying to convert you I'm trying to convert you but every time you know if you're doing the Eine Kleine Nachtmusik there's al always going to be someone there who's never heard it before and one of my favorite uh, traumatic exercises games uh, which Tim Carroll used to do with us is you say you, your goal you have to sing this aria or sing your line your goal is to make choose one person in the audience and make them stand up they don't know that you're trying to make them stand up but you know your your focus on them and your delivery to them is so intense that you are trying to achieve some kind of physical transformation in them 
And that's you know, just a fantastic way of, of targeting and, and focusing on somebody. But that's, you know, effectively, that is what we try to do in console. We'd, we'd love well, to have that, a, stand, that, well, we'd love to have a standing what... ovation at the end of the concert. So, you know, that, that Well, that's that what Solomon's of... not does, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that... I mean, to be honest, if there was a group that was going to convert me, it will be Solomon's not because uh, of that. And especially with John's age, you know, uh, enlivening their facility to bring about their communication. It's, yeah, I'm I waiting to be converted. Yeah. Well, it's good that you're, you know, you're open to being converted. At least that's a good start. <laughs> I just want to open come back heart, to... open mind. Yeah. That's what I'm o- saying. Open ears. Um, I-, I just want to come back to one point of the the story and the way that we receive this story i do feel that there is there is a way we can receive this piece which has nothing to do with god that you know just taking this brutal story and murder and everybody's reaction to it at face value as bettina said the music humanizes the events and the words to such an extent or manages to to catch catch us and capture us it seems to me that we can imagine being implicated in as you also said that the, the gamut of human capabilities from the best to the worst and this story is really not far away i mean it is to a large extent a, a political lynching um, and really not far from events which surround us now of political persecution, of groupthink, which you know t- turn make which make end up and people doing horrible things to one another. And I think there's a to me there's a way that this piece reaches out and hits us now because we can so easily see how close we could become to being very, very cruel to one another. And distance from the Jesus story, I think it it enables us to see in our own humanity what the, the depths and darknesses are. And for me, that that's what makes it still so emotional. That even if you don't, you couldn't care less about Jesus and what happened to him, the fact that it, the the story is so humanized makes us see that we could still be any of us in this kind of situation, and we would also most probably fail, like Peter and Judas and all of these other people. Is that not clear? Is is that not clearer told in, in perhaps say Brockus's um, libretto? Well, no, because story, where where he personalizes it and makes it feel like real people. You know? Not for me, Brockus goes too far. For it's too okay. vivid. It's too disgusting. We're talking about the the thorns piercing through the soft temples into Jesus' brain. I mean. Even some of Pizander's imagery is, is quite hard to swallow for us nowadays, I feel. For me, Brockus is it's just sort of so disgusting. It's a turn-off. 
But I think that... And, the, but, and, sorry, go on. The, sorry, no, I just want to say that the Matthew Passion, for example, or the John, they maintain more of a balance that doesn't go too far into that hyper hyper realism, which for me is 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 um, distancing. But it's also about the the, if I remember correctly, um, Peter gets arias in the Brockers Passion, but in the Matthew, those arias are not his; they're ours. Those belong to us, and so it is the difference in a way between shoehorning some, a narrative into a space, into a liter- into a into a time and space that says. This happened here um, about this group of people, and so this is about Peter and his problems. When you, but in the Matthew Passion, it's somebody who's not involved in the in in that story who says, "Oh, I'm overwhelmed," or when it when so like, I mean like like patience is I have in the face of injustice, I find myself really struggling with patience sometimes. And and that whether I believe in God or not, or in, I that aria communicates to me more because it's not sung by a character from from within the biblical story. It's about somebody stepping, sitting outside of it, relating to the story and about what it means to them. And that I find that incredibly touching. Bettina, do you have any final thoughts for us? Can't wait! Can't wait to hear it and see it. Well, we're bringing it as close to you as we possibly can. So I really appreciate that. I, I appreciate the effort. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, it's hard to know how to sum up, really. We're, our journey with this piece continues. We haven't talked very much about the chorales and their role within all of this uh, function, but perhaps we'll have to do, save that for another day. The fact that there is this seam through the piece which plugs into a an old but not that old communal memory and... And Can sums I just, up the just on that, that on that on that subject, of course, the communal memory is is important. But I, I think there's a, a really basic thing about Matthew Passion, which is: Are we talking about ich or uns? And yeah, yeah. so, are, are we? Then we have this third person narrative running all the way through, and all the music that Bach throws his throws his cannons at is about is not in the third person. It's always in the first person, singular or plural. Um, and I find that incredibly, I mean, it's very strong in terms of dramaturgical structure, but it, it seems to me that that is the piece, that it's about us. And the chorales are that moment where we share something. Of course, that that audience at the time would have known those, those chorale melodies in the way that we don't today, but I still think it, it has a feeling of a hymn that we feel like we could join in on even if we don't. The chorale becomes the universalizing, the, the communalizing element. Well, one could argue that the piece as a whole, the Matthew Passion, has become, for people who listen to Western classical music a lot, has become to some extent like one of those chorales in itself. It has become a piece that we know very well, that we hear over and over again. And yes, perhaps that's that's one of its main functions. It, it brings so many of us back together in the same room, gives us a point of communal experience and forms part of that social glue, which which is a key role that culture can play. Which goes back to Chad's points 
earlier in the at the beginning was saying that this is this really for one audience of a particular time or an audience of all time or the future because now the piece has entered into the into the into the repertory in a kind of has an iconic status and it 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 exists for us today as a great work of art around which we can gather regardless of what we think it means but that's why why it's nice i think to keep thinking about how we might how we might perform it, how we might do it, so that, that that dialogue through the ages continues, you know, the dialogue between Bach and this music and different audiences. And if if the if the kind of thing that worked for twentieth century audiences in terms of the concert hall performance, maybe that's, you know, on its way out. And we find we find different ways of of uh, continuing that, that dialogue. Certainly plugging into a place like the Herdekirche in Weimar, which is a fantastic architectural work of art in itself, with the altar piece by Cranach behind it, and the audience which we have in front of us, with whom we create on the spot this brand new musical experience. It's going to plug, plug it in, in lots and lots of different directions. So we can't wait either, like Bettina. <laughs> We can't wait to get stuck into the Matthew Passion and hope that our listeners and people who come to see it with us can share their experiences with us. And we hope that Chad will continue on his journey to Damascus. I'm ready. I, I'm honestly ready, open and willing. We're going to make stand up. Stand up, stand up I'm Chad. I'm ready. Stand up. I'm ready. I just... I'm, I'm going to be honest to myself. I need to be convinced, and I'm going to be ready. <laughs> Great. And I'm looking forward to it. Super. Thank you all so much for your time today. It's been great to chat, and hope to see you all soon in the flesh or otherwise. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Right. Bye. Lovely to see you. Take care.